Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, before I introduce my guest this week, I would just like to ask you again, as I always do, but it always works, um, please do subscribe, won't you? By clicking the subscribe button uh, on the channel. It's very easy. Next door there is a blue bell, which is where you get notifications. So if you click on that, that means you'll get notifications coming up uh, of all of our programs. Now, my guest this week, I'm very pleased to say, is Doug Stokes. Doug is Professor and Head of Research and Development at the Strategy and Security Institute at the University of Exeter. Uh, he also contributes to numerous publications, including Spectator, The Critic and The Telegraph. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Doug. Uh, good to see you. Um, I wanted to ask you about something very specifically, um, being at your university. Uh, in the Queen's speech quite recently, the government made one of its, well, I would say emblematic attempts to look at the culture wars. And it mentioned, it, it introduced a bill, which is called the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill. Now, I think this is making its way through Parliament. There's been so much controversy and discussion about the state of free speech on campus. Um, what does this bill actually, what is it intended to do? Well, I think, I think what it's intended to, to do, I think, I think a lot of the critics have misunderstood it. Uh, I think what it's intended to do, uh, institutionally at least, is to establish a new uh, free speech champion within the Office for Students. Right. So the Office for Students is the regulatory body for all well, for English universities at least. And so the bill, once it passes through uh, the various stages it needs to go through, and obviously there'll be some tussles as it moves through the various stages. Um, so once the bill goes through, <clears throat> it'll establish a, a free speech champion in the Office for Students who will have the regulatory power to find the universities ultimately if they don't um, promote academic freedom and freedom of speech. Right. Uh, but I, but I, I mean, so and and but I think what it's about also is um, if we think about um, how societies work, you have what we might call structural incentivizations of various institutions, right? So in other words, if you do X, Y, Z, you get rewarded in this way. If you don't do X, Y, Z, you get, you know, it goes bad in this way. And universities, like most corporate entities, respond very, very strongly to structural incentivizations. So I, so I, so I, so I, so I think, and, and in the university system, we have, for example, the teaching excellence framework, the research excellence framework, and these are various structural incentivizations set up by various regulatory bodies in the university system to promote uh, research excellence or teaching excellence, etc. Right. Mm. So, and and then universities will set up a whole bureaucratic substructure to make sure that their systems are in place to sort of ultimately meet what the, the incentives of these various structures that are, that are in place. So I, so I think the government, very bravely, by the way, I think very bravely, it was a, it was a manifesto commitment. Yeah. But I think that the, the Department for Education team has done a fantastic job in, ta in, in taking that seriously, that, 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 that commitment to freedom uh, and to academic freedom. So, what, so ultimately, what you'll see then is an academic uh, freedom champion within the office for students. But, I, but more broadly, on a structural level at least, you'll then see universities structurally incentivized to make sure they take academic freedom and freedom of speech. But academic freedom in its broader sense, yeah, uh, very very seriously. Um, and to the extent that we care about um, 
the, ultimately the progress of humanity. Right? If you think about it, I mean, we think about the progress of humanity. It's, it's kind of a dialectical process. We have a sort of settled orthodoxy yeah. and new challenges or revolutionary challenges come along and they overturn it. I mean, like Galileo, Darwin, Newton, we can go on and on and on. Uh, and so, so essentially, what the way I see this is, it, it, it's an it's a government intervention. For me, ideally, it wouldn't be government or state-led, but unfortunately, the rot is so deep. That's where we are now. Mm. Uh, it's, so, it's a government intervention, to, not not to sort of come down hard necessarily, but to, to ultimately protect a beachhead, that the, the, the ground, a foundation stone, if you will, where academic the, the academic dialectic can take place. And I think that's what it, that's the way I see it. Right. I mean, uh, it, that's the way I see it. It's, it's ultimately about the preservation of values that unfortunately are under direct threat, mostly from, I would say, uh, university leaderships across the UK. Uh, you know, with crossed all kinds of very very strange and very dodgy lines, in in, in my opinion. Uh, so 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 that's uh, that's a very. I've, I've taken a long time to answer your question. No, but no, that, no. But that's that's the way I see it. It is, it is interesting. Uh, I'm glad you took a long time, but because obviously there is a problem. However, not according to Tony Blair and Lord Adonis, who I believe last week um, said something to, along the lines of that this was a bill in search of a problem, that there was no problem with free speech in universities. That's just patently absurd, is it not, Doug? It's, it, it, well, it, it's absurd on, on a multiple range of levels, right? And this is what I don't get about the critics. Even if you think that this is some dastardly right-wing plot or some kind of uh, some bizarre machination in the, in the culture wars, why would you care so much mm. uh, that we are protecting? Legislation is going through to protect the foundation stone of, of, of this country, i.e. freedom of speech, freedom of conscience and freedom of thought. Why would you devote so much time to sort of trying to tear this down uh, as if it's some yeah. bizarre right-wing plot? I mean, so even if the, even if Mr. Blair and uh, Lord Adonis are, are right, so what? So mm, what? So, mm. so you're going to get another bureaucracy and it's just going to sit there twiddling its thumbs in the worst case scenario. But there will be a bureaucracy to ultimately protect academic freedom. So that's even if they're right, but they're not right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you've got, you know, the terms cancel culture and, and, and all the rest of it. So, but what I've seen, and you, you've had Eric Kaufman on, he's a good friend and colleague, and, and, and Nigel Bigger as well. I mean, so, and, and there's, there's so much evidence for this. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it, even on, the, on, the, on sort of the student unions banning speakers. And the, but for me, the bigger, much bigger problem, and, I, and every time I write something that goes out there, I get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails from some of the most senior people in the country, by the way, mm. who say to me, Doug, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I, I, I agree with you 100%, but I, I can't say anything because I'm fearful for my career, I'm mm. fearful for my job. Mm. I had one just the other day. I won't name, obviously, we'll never name an individual or even an institution, right? Mm. But I get them all the time. And these aren't junior academics. These aren't, you know, newbies. These are people at the very, very top of the academic food chain who will not stand up, basically, and, and put their neck out, but then but agree 110% with what's going on. Mm. That shows you the, the nature of the culture in our institutions in this country. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very, very worrying. Um, you know, you have all these kind of faddish commitments to all these kind of taking what are, in fact, 
absolutely marginal theories, interesting theories like decolonization, uh, and which draws from post-colonial theories from Edward Said and, 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 and these, kind of, these kind of theorists. So, but, but, they've, but in many ways, they've taken what are absolutely fringe theories and now imposed them from the top down mm. in the name of social justice. Mm. Now, that to me is crossing a massive line. So that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you I mean, do you do you recognize the kind of picture that is drawn of the academic world being with sort of monolithic in terms of opinion and that it is producing students of equally, you know, monolithic views, you know, that there's the, the very place that should be full of nuance and diversity is where you find it the least. Do, do you, do you recognise that as a picture? Well, it's, it, it's not about my recognition. It is obviously established fact. I mean, if you look at the opinion polls over and over again, you know, I mean, and, and this isn't me denigrating my academic colleagues, by the way. I mean, I, I think I, I see my job as an absolute privilege. I love, you know, the, the student engagement. Students on the whole are fantastic. And even as the staff who may disagree with me in many issues are on the whole very good people. These aren't bad people. But absolutely, if you look at the opinion polling, it's quite clear. There is a very, very hegemonic common sense, to use the Gramscian term, a kind of, you know, this kind of, you know, it's pretty much established monolithic anti-Brexit um, uh, uh, kind of uh, very much uh, increasingly now on the kind of social justice woke. You know, I hate to use that term. It's such a sort of bizarre term, but uh, it, it captures something very real. So, so, so the, the woke, you know, the woke, the, that, that's, that, 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 is, that is quite strong. Um, and I do think a lot of academics, and no judgment on this, by the way, but I do a lot of academics see their role not so much as like guided professionals, although they are very professional, but more uh, they see it as a vocation in terms of social transformation. Yeah, so if yeah. you come into in, if you come into the job with that that vibe, and it doesn't change as you get older and more grizzled like me, you know, and and you kind of develop certain standards necessarily, you know, if you see it, if that's that's the way you are. And then another broader point, and this is a, this is a, I'll, I'll shut up in a second, but a broader point, and it's, it's any any social system. This is a really important point, right? Any social system, you have to think about the internal mechanisms through which it learns from mistakes, right? How does any social? So, in a market system, for example, learning from a mistake is you don't make much money. So people customers will go elsewhere and so that that's the, the sort of natural process of evolution so that that's how the internal feedback mechanism works right in the public sector or in the universities how do you how then do you recalibrate in relation to theoretical mistakes so for example you may you may <laughs> be an out and out marxist right and you know you believe in the proletarian revolution and, and that's that's one way but then that has, hasn't necessarily keyed into the history of the 20th century for example yeah or, yeah or you can believe in Foucault and post-structuralism uh and you know it's everything's about discourse but then it doesn't key into the incredible advances we have in science and and and, and because of the nature of the system itself it often it takes place with an academic petri dish but it doesn't often have to sort of come into contact with the real world in some senses mm -hmm. so that's not me denigrating the job or my colleagues in any way. I have tremendous respect for academics and academia. But to answer your question, absolutely, it's very, very, very homogenous. Yeah. But one final point, if I may, Peter, and I know I'm going on quite a lot here. Even if we accept, which is obviously quite, that, that, that is very, very homogenous, this then goes back to the academic freedom debates, right? Insofar as even if we accept it's homogenous, 
that's that, in one way that's not great because students aren't going to get exposed to all the, the diversity of viewpoints and diversity of ideas it's and it's not heterodox in some senses and it's very much a it's, it's very much a kind of like there's a it's kind of underlying assumptions that just form the framework for all of academic discourse okay and they and they just almost go unquestioned mm. we can go on to what they may may, may be in a bit or whatever but but that's where it's at but again i go back to my original point for me the big problem is not so much the academic homogeneity but when university leadership teams come along who should be impartial and say well we're going to take that marginal fringe theory and we're going to impose it from the top down so it's no longer about academic contestation it's no longer a petri dish no longer an hegelian dialectic of debate now it is from the top down a technocratic imposition of a, of a very specific worldview right and that in my opinion is an absolute betrayal of the fundamental values of the university system mm. the british mm. taxpayer mm. And that that's where it goes badly wrong so even if you have homogeneity in academia when you have the imposition from the top down of a specific set of bizarre fringe theories and as the as the way of operating and the way of conducting yourself that's that is a fundamental betrayal of the values of the university system you're talking broadly, are you not, about critical race theory here. Um, this is one, critical theory generally, isn't that right? This is the, this is the sort of movement that has actually been imposed. Uh, critical race theory is the one that we are, it's most to the forefront, if you like. Um, well, well, critical race theory, yeah, that, that's what the, the two main ones are decolonizing, the, you know, this decolonizing idea and critical race theory now decolonizing the curriculum I've, I've done a book on Foucault and it kind of draws on very draws on kind of post-structuralism post-modernism post-colonial I won't bore your 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 listeners and your fantastic viewers with too much going down the the road of social theory and all the ins and outs of it but it draws on um uh, those kind of ideas and Edward Said for example did a, fan, a very interesting book called Orientalism yeah Okay, and, and these are actually really interesting ideas, and it's, it ultimately talks about the idea of, um, you know, systems of knowledge uh, have implicit power relationships and stuff like that. Now, utterly contestable, there's been huge amounts of academic debate about this stuff, it's been, you know, pulled apart, picked apart, and, it's, and it's, it is ultimately a kind of ele one element, of, you know, on, on the end of a very broad social scientific spectrum, right? decolonizing the curriculum but what you've had is you've had a kind of moral panic amongst the the university leadership uh, across the united kingdom and you saw this most notably with the uh, you know, universities uk did a report tackling racial injustice in higher education in, 20, right. uh, in 2020 yeah. Yeah. in november 2020 and i urge all of your uh, listeners and readers to go and download that from report from the uk website and in there they, they, they essentially uh, endorse critical race theory and decolonizing the curriculum. This is, the, this is at the very top of the VC system. So this has now been percolating out right across the university system. They endorse de decolonizing the curriculum and they talk. And so sticking with decolonizing the curriculum. So basically, this is a very, very fringe theory, right? It's interesting. It's got some really interesting points, highly contestable, highly debatable, but it should be, it should, it's just one of many, many flavors of social, scientific or humanities theories. But what university leaderships have done as a result of the UK and this kind of moral panic that we're now seeing with importing from America, the kind of the, the sort of the, whatever you think, the sort of toxic racial positive, we've imported it now. 
And these, these are supposed to be pro progressive leftists. And they kind of champion American imperialism, cultural imperialism, importing from America the, the, the racial discourse of America into yeah. this country. Yeah. Basically. So, 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 so what's happened now is they've taken decolonizing the curriculum and the line has been crossed. You saw it, for example, was, was it Stephen Toop at Cambridge recently? He got, a, he got himself into a little bit of a hoo-ha because he put an anonymous snitching Stasi-like portal online whereby staff and students can sort of submit um, uh, reports on, on, on individual members of staff at Cambridge that have committed a racial microaggression. Microaggression. What, what actually, what are we talking about? What were those microaggressions? What kind of things would they... Let, 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 let me give you a very good example, Peter, right? The EHRC produced some reports in 2019, right? And there was two sets of data reports that were absolutely terribly done. But those data reports, I won't get too much in the rabbit hole here, but those two data reports form the empirical basis for the UK reports and the various reports now taken up by university leadership teams. Okay, the EHRC produced these reports. They're, 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 they're terrible. Now, in terms of like their, um, and I've written on this as well, if you're interested, you, you know, you can. I've done some great, well, not, not blowing my own trumpet, but with, my great colleague Wanju Nayoja, who's a Rhodes Scholar here at Exeter, we did an interesting piece in Quillette. If you're interested in looking at that, mm. but basically, the, so these EHRC reports in evidencing alleged r racial um, uh, injustice across the UK higher education system, the principal way that they do this is very amorphous, very vague, is microaggressions. Let, let me give your listeners some examples of the microaggressions. These are these are direct quotes that EHRC reports say. Uh, evidence of racism in UK uh, universities, right, and have been used to push through the critical race theory, decolonizing the curriculum, microaggression agenda in UK universities. You ready? One of the one of, one of the examples of racial microaggressions: a black um, student or staff member was in the lift. A white staff member went to get in the lift, changed their mind, and went down the stairs. That was the evidence of a race racial microaggression in the EHRC reports. A lecturer's body language. A lecturer's body language and demeanor. That's a direct quote, by the way. A lecturer's body language and demeanor. If they stand, I don't know, with your arms folded. Or Stephen Toop's snitch portal on Cambridge. If somebody raises an eyebrow when you're talking to somebody. If, if, if a student says something and, and you raise an eyebrow, that's uh, alleged uh, yeah. racial microaggression. Uh, discussions of Brexit, and I quote, that have introduced a cold wind on UK campuses. Mm. Evidence of microaggressions. So if we if we think about this, right, think about this. The West won the Cold War. We the West won the Cold War. OK. And we are now looking more and more like East Germany. Mm -hmm. Online portals for reporting people that raise an eyebrow, somebody's body language, somebody that takes a lift, somebody that discusses Brexit. And this isn't this isn't fringe stuff. This is the EHRC and the UK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The very top of the food chain. Yes. There we are. Isn't it, I mean, isn't the essence of, for example, the critical race theory, that really it, it's, it's, it's just anti-white racism, isn't it? <coughs> I mean, isn't that the real essence of it? That by virtue of being white, you inherently have this racism in you. This is the point. So you're actually talking about a whole group of people that are therefore just beyond redemption by virtue of being what they are. Isn't this actually the, the, the motivating uh, engine, really? 
well that that's one element of it mm. but i mean so, so essentially critical race theory uh as far as i can tell and it, it's like a lot of these grievance theories that we see i think actually sorry you actually did uh you had a great term for it called the grievance industrial complex i.e not the usual military <laughs> industrial complex the grievous in grieve grievance industrial complex maybe yeah. you could explain that i mean i think i know what you mean but if you could explain it well i i borrowed obviously from the military industrial complex yeah. the military industrial complex the underlying logic of the, that argument is is that you have uh, a self-reinforcing relationship so you have say for example that the, the, the american state has strong corporate interests linked to weapons producers and and so this kind of corporate revolving door then kind of you know it, it inculcates its own path dependency towards war right so i borrowed that i did, did a piece in the critical the grievance industrial complex where i look at uh, what you have is you have university leadership teams and then you have various uh, uh, external bodies we've seen for example recently in stonewall mm. very heavily involved in the news uh and and stonewall for example was produced you know it has these kind of like links to various public sector bodies and private sector bodies universities etc then you have other other organizations like advance he now advance he is a massive uh higher education uh it kind of provides training courses and workshops and they also run a thing called the race equality charter and this, the, the race equality charter is really is is is, is essentially is the thing now that's kind of if you go on their website you can read all about it. It's all about decolonizing the curriculum. It's, it's, it's open endorsement of critical race theory and stuff like this. So the race equality charter, uh, a bit like the Stonewall Charter or the, the the Athena Swan, the gender equality charter, the race equality charter is, is a thing that universities now are reaching for and pulling off the shelf and saying, well, we're going to submit our institution through the Advance HE's race equality charter. And it has bronze stars, silver stars, and gold stars. And then once you get your various stars, you can put them on the front of your, uh, you know, the university logo and say, we're a proud member of, um, you know, Advance HE's race squad chart. We've achieved this, 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 this gold star. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think, I, don't, I think, I think, you know, nobody has any issue with anti-racist. I've been anti-racist all my life. Um, I, I abhor discrimination. Uh, you know, absolutely. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find a more progressive uh, sector than the university sector. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, very, yeah. very strong. And when you look at the actual data, it, it really, I mean, so you've got this kind of, in many ways, in a kind of a, a moral panic has been thrown up. And but, but then you have these self interested organizations. So, for example, like Advance HE, one of the ways it makes its money. Is to run these workshops, is to run these accreditation programs. Same with Stonewall, same with other organizations, right? So the point I made in the Grievance Industrial Complex is you have a kind of a kind of strange uh, uh, symbiotic relationship between these various charities, yeah. sometimes quangos, sometimes non-governmental agencies, university leaderships, which creates its own path dependency towards certain types of corporate change in corporate culture. And I think that's what, what that's what we're seeing in the in in the UK. To come back to your point about critical race theory, if you will, so Advance HE and the Race Equality Charter, it kind of explicitly adopts critical race theory as its worldview. Um, you know, it kind of it, it adopts this. But but maybe we can talk a bit bit about the kind of the, the implications of that, educational implications of that. Yeah. So what I'm so what I find absolutely so shocking is, as you said, Peter, it, it, it seems to endorse 
a really kind of casual anti-white racism. Yes. Yeah, uh, where, yeah. Whereby whiteness, so-called whiteness, is is seen as this malign, negative, terrible thing, and then and then it operationalizes these concepts of white privilege, uh, 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 white fragility. So basically, it, the white privilege, as, you, as your listeners may know, essentially says. Uh, all white people, as a result of their skin color and therefore the sort of the, the structural position within society, have inherent privilege, mm. right? And if you deny this as as a, or the lived experience of the people saying this, whoever they may be, then you're you're displaying white fragility. I, I, it's a sort of self-referential logic to it. Well, yes, so it, isn't it rather like the old? Um... Isn't it rather like the old ducking stool? If the, if, the, if the woman, I think if the woman drowned, she was guilty, but if she survived, she was also guilty. I think if the woman drowns, she's innocent. If she floats, right. yeah. you've got to get her anyway. I think, I don't think you're too far wrong. Or it's, yeah. it, it's kind of like the, the Kafkaesque, isn't it? Yes. The, deni the, the denial of it yeah. is simply a kind of the, the affirmation of one's inner guilt. Yeah. But the, the thing about what gets me the most about this is a lot of universities and staff are drawn from often from people, you know, they come from very elite families. They come from very, very often very privileged backgrounds. Um, and often universities exist in a sea of deprivation. So you, you can go a, a, a kilometer away from most campuses. And you'll find very rundown uh, uh, council states. I think there's an individual at Birmingham who's like one of the, the sort of central critical race theorists. I come. I think his name's Professor Kahindi. Uh, I think he's uh, uh, Kahindi, Kahindi Andrews, and um, you know, and he's like one of the, the big critical race theorists. And he talks explicitly about whiteness as a psychosis. Uh, but the thing about that is, I, what I would like to do is, I, 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 maybe GB News could do this as a program or somebody, uh, 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 but basically to take some of these academics that are expounding these theories, right, and take them down the road to some council estates mm. or, or take them down the road to, you know, areas of extreme social deprivation. And what I would love to see is those academics who are on fantastic wages, nice fat pensions, blah, 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 public sector pensions, right, to then explain to those individuals on those council estates and tell them about their white privilege. Yeah. I, think, I think that's what they should do. And if they can do that and morally accept themselves afterwards and keep doing it, then, you know, fair play to them. I think their ideas are complete. And I can't swear, but I think they're not, they're not correct in any way. But do you see what I mean? And, yeah. and that, it's like the university campus is like a Petri dish and you get all these ideas and the casual anti-white racism now that we see i mean even an academic I'm, I'm amazed that a lot of these academics haven't been done legally under the equality act mm. i think i think a lot of academics and a lot of university leadership teams are on really really dodgy ground legally yeah. because if you look at the equality act and especially the public sector equality duty section 149 explicitly states that you have to ultimately promote harmony amongst protected characteristics and race is one of them so what I don't understand is you have privileged academics banging on about uh, whiteness, white privilege, structural uh, uh, whiteness and white fragility, right? And, and I, I'm amazed that you're not seeing hundreds if not thousands of lawsuits against institutions or against academics under the Equality, under the Equality Act. Because I, 
how is it not racism? I don't know. It's not, but the, the, the point surely is, is that the people who maybe would bring or could bring an action against them on those grounds are kind of sort of on board. That's the problem. Uh, you know, that the, they, uh, they're full of guilt, they're full of self-hatred, actually. Um, one other thing I think is very important to mention, when you, if you go back, you know, Doug, you're talking about the report that came out couple of years ago, the structural racism in universities and all of this, um, the one group uh, that is least likely to go now to university is in fact white working class, isn't that right? White working class boys, I think, um, but they are least likely. Um, and this, but why are these facts somehow never taken on board? We sort of know them, but somehow the theory or the, the ideology is quite, it's just allowed to sail on, isn't it? It's allowed to sail on, even though the facts simply don't support it. Well, the, the, this is, your listeners may have picked up, your viewers may have picked up, I'm quite passionate about this. And I feel strongly about that. You could, you could get that vibe just now. Mm. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is because I was born in Hackney in East London. I lived there for 24, 25 years. I grew up in two, most of my childhood was spent in two rooms, my mum, my dad, my brother and me. My, my parents, we all shared one tiny little bedroom, right? I, had, I couldn't afford to do O-levels. I had to sort of do an access course at the age of 20 because I couldn't afford it. I came from a very poor working class family, right? The first person in my family to ever go to university, right? So I'm now and, and within, you know, by the age of 40, I was a professor at a leading Muslim university, i.e. Exeter, okay? So that, that's why I'm quite passionate about it. That's why you can sense this kind of burning injustice in me because I think that... Um, for a start, I, I had a very multiracial, multi-ethnic upbringing. The first hands to ever bring me to touch me was a was a Jamaican midwife. My first ever love was a was a black black girl. Um, very multi-ethnic, very multiracial mm. upbringing, right? And you can see that the efforts and just the, how everybody, poor people, black and white, and everything in between, had to mix and rub and just get along, get on with their lives, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I see this stuff now, and for me, this is people often white liberals yeah. middle class liberals right and i think and this goes back to the, the politics of brexit and a lot of what we've we're seeing now you say you say that their guilt that their guilt uh, i think you're right i think there is this kind of element of guilt but i think there's been a, an elision now between class privilege and a lot of these people pushing these ideas are very very privileged upper upper middle class people highly educated from elite families very wealthy families right yeah. So, so I think you're, you're seeing an elision now between the politics of class where the left and the progressive left have kind of abandoned class, mm. uh, if you will, as the primary kind of category of oppression to, 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 to then move on to these kind of other uh, forms of identity politics and grievance politics, i.e. race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is about guilt to some extent and self-flagellation, but I think it's also primarily about uh, a, a, moral, a moral economy, yeah. right? So when when you when you point the finger and you are white privilege and you've got this and you've got that, you're really saying I'm one of the good people. Yeah. I'm on a higher moral plane than you, mm -hmm. right? And I'm looking down and I can judge you. Mm -hmm. And in in so far doing it, and it's kind of on a meta meta theoretical or meta philosophical level, what you're ultimately doing there then is you're reinforcing a kind of uh, a kind of I'd say it's kind of a lazy progressive liberalism that's floated in the ether now for about 40 or 50 years 
on the back of the institutional settlement of the Second World War, right? Mm-hmm. And it just going, and, and that, and, and, and that's why in, in in the in some of my recent pieces, I talk about even the struggle over Brexit, right? It wasn't it wasn't even a, a cost benefit analysis in many in many ways. It was far more akin to a theological struggle. Mm-hmm. Really, very much, much more of a the- mm-hmm. and a question of faith, right? And the faith was in this, this kind of supranational, this progressive, cosmopolitan, ode to joy liberalism, right? And then the EU was, was was socially constructed as that as this thing. If you look at the reality of it, I mean, you know, from the the, the savage debt restructuring imposed on Greece. To, you know, right the way through to the you know the anti-democratic machinations in Italy and the the, the, the destruction of med, the med, southern Mediterranean youth unemployment yeah. as a result. Yeah. But let's, 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 let's ignore those facts, right? Let's just maintain the narrative. So I, I, I so I think I think a lot of this stuff we're seeing now is partly about guilt. It's about uh, class privilege. Mm. Yeah, it's 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 about mainly also it's about a moral economy. Where those that adopt this are on a higher moral plane and then looking down at those that they despise and have long despised i.e the british working class black white and everything in between mm. they are they are the primary target they are the primary target of these people mm. uh, and i think you saw that very much through the politics of brexit mm. which was constructed as kind of like uh, the gammons you know these yeah. kind of unreconstructed uh, racist xenophobic and you're seeing it and I think that is the discourse that we're seeing. It's, it's an elite discourse mm. which allows those propounding it to abrogate their moral responsibilities to their country, to their fellow countrymen, to judge them, to put them on a higher, a higher moral plane where they're kind of keying into these loose and woolly ideas of progressivism, etc. cetera. Um, but, and I'll quickly, I'll, I'll shut up in a second. The thing is, those, uh, that woolly liberalism and progressivism is very much resting on very very shaky geopolitical foundations yeah. as i argued recently in the telegraph piece right that where we where we've been at in european history in the last 40 odd years 50 odd years is not the norm in human history great power competition is coming back right uh globalization has in many senses uh, put in play a whole range of structural forces within the global economy and within international relations and international politics that we simply cannot ignore. And that's the way in which I interpret Brexit as, an, as, a, as a kind of impulse in that changing configuration of international politics about national sovereignty and the, the, the new dispensation that, we're, that I think we're going to see emerging. So but with this new situation that will emerge, I mean, how is that being reflected in what we've discussed so far, Doug? How, how is that being reflected in all the issues that we're talking about? Well, I, I think that um, Trump, now whatever you think about Trump, I think you had Victor Davis Hanson on a few yeah. weeks ago. I mean, he's quite pro-Trump. Now, whatever you think about Trump, let's forget Trump for, for now, right? But let's talk about the social forces or Trumpism. Now, Trump, he may or may not come back. He, that may or may not be a bad thing. You know, we can discuss that, right? But the social forces that underlie what he was about, or at least his message was about, are not going away, i.e. Uh, a rejection of globalization, a rejection of the outsourcing, and the, and, and, and the active promotion of, post, of post-industrial economies in America, where the working class have been very much le- been left behind. Uh, the, 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 and and the, the hollowing out 
of 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 many communities and national life and that and 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 so so we go back to what i said before this commitment to this amorphous progressivist supranational element to it that also captures the globalization moment doesn't it of the 1990s and the noughties where we saw this this promotion of the open world open borders and what that actually meant when you scratch you scratch the surface a little bit is ultimately outsourcing of jobs the sort of post-industrial decline in, in the anglophone economies in particular in particular in america right the abrogation of the quality of life for many many ordinary people in america yeah. right uh, and all done in the name of this of this kind of uh, corporate uh, globalization which is a, and this kind of this, this borderless progressivism uh, which then, which then launches various savage wars uh, to ultimately to to promote this this kind of bizarre idea so so i think what we're seeing now the social forces that have been thrown up as a result of that change in the anglophone economies in particular the social forces they're not going to go any they're not going to go anywhere anytime soon so the so the social forces of trumpism yeah uh, in terms of the return to, of national sovereignty the rejection of globalization uh, and and those kinds of those kind of elements and may, maybe even a, a change in the global economy into a more us centered global economy and a more china centered global economy i think we may we, we may see that too but what that's doing is it's reaffirming the primacy of of sovereignty and national sovereignty in the context of this changing global economy mm. and i think that's one of the ways in which we should understand brexit as a as an impulse as a uh, an instinct if you will of the british people in terms of where we want to position ourselves going into the future and and these these kind of broader changes yes speaking of the future actually you you wrote recently uh in fact you wrote a piece in telegraph this weekend i believe it was uh in which you were talking about the nature of for want of a better expression, the woke attack or the hard left attack on our history and culture, which is what it is. Um, but you sort of said that, look, you know, this is this is about erasing Western civilization. Um, and what we've got to be aware of is that there are states in the world who have a fair amount of self-belief, you know, either existing or to come in the future, who actually don't have uh, a lack of confidence in what they are. Um, we are, in a way, up against them, are we not? Well, th that's a fantastic point, Peter. I mean, you've absolutely nailed it. Uh, essentially, this goes back to some of the broader themes that we've just discussed, i.e., if we think about it, right, you know, the, the, the decolonizing, the decolonizers, the post-colonialists, the anti-statues, you know, all, all, the, all, this, all this phenomena, right, it ultimately takes at its heart the, the deconstruction, if you will, of Western civilization or, or, or elements of it, a rejection of reason in many senses, a rejection of progress in many ways. And essentially what it wants to do, it seems to me at least, is to sort of uh, inflect uh, and generate a sense of, of, of extreme guilt. Mm -hmm. Right Now, guilt is one of the most powerful emotions in terms of disabling you. Mm -hmm. Right, I'm not saying it's necessarily conscious, right? But... Guilt is a highly di disabling emotion. Mm. Now, the irony is this. Western, the West, UK, for example, you look at all the opinion polling. It, it's, it's one of the most progressive, liberal, multi-ethnic democracies in human history. Where else would anybody who's gay or non-white or, you know, where else would you rather be? 
and there may be somewhere else but i mean you know we're, we're not we're not too far from the top right if you look at opinion polling okay mm. and then all of our institutions uh, rightfully so you know, trying their very best to promote equal opportunity uh, and a kind of more and, and that that kind of society right very very progressive okay now to go back to my earlier point the the, the where we're at now in terms of the geopolitics of Europe and the West in general, is we are seeing a rapid, a, a declining America in many senses, right? And you have a rising China. You have China's coming up very, very strong economically. Uh, and then you have, uh, on the edges of Europe, you have Russia, uh, a highly uh, if militarily very, very effective state, very strong, economically but not very strong, and it has its own demographic problems. But nonetheless, it has a very, you know, a, militarily very powerful on the edge of Europe can cause all kinds of problems as we're seeing in Ukraine. We're seeing China, very strong, uh, rapid economic uh, de development now. And in, in many senses, economically, we're kind of entering into a more kind of bipolar international economic system, a sort of China and, and, and a sort of Western-centered America. But nonetheless, America uh, seems to be very much on decline, not just economically relative to China, mm, yeah. but, but, but also in terms of its kind of civilizational mojo. And if we cast our minds back, <coughs> During the Cold War, what did we have? We had anti-communism as a kind of broad discourse that helped to shape relationships in the West. And it worked quite well. It had various security alliances within it, but it worked very well because essentially the, the, the enemy, if you will, if you want to put it in crude terms, was real, i.e. Soviet Russia. You had the, after the end of the Cold War, we then had this, this kind of amorphous, supranational, global progressivism and, and globalization. But so the point I, we try to sort of make in that piece in the Telegraph is what now binds the West? What's the story? What's to sort of, if you want to put it on more kind of grandiose terms, what's the what's the, what's what's the, the sort of transcendent story that we have that binds us spiritually, if you want to put it in those kind of terms? Because if we think about it, politics isn't just about the politics of the rational and cost-benefit analysis. It's also fundamentally about identity. Mm. It's about how we understand our place in space. It's about how we understand ourselves as a people. And, and that's why when you saw the, uh, the, the attacks on Churchill and the statues, underlying that, it's not just about the physical attacks on those things. It's about the symbolic, what that means symbolically, mm -hmm. right? In terms of the, the attack on, if you will, on, on the, the sort of the transcendental purpose and the history and the culture and the institutions of this country, right? So, so the point in that Telegraph piece is really making that. We, we are in a very strange place. Progressives apparently want to tear down the, you know, the kind of the, 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 the Western international system that's already going down pretty, pretty goddamn quick, right? Mm. They want to tear it down. And yet it's most, one of the most progressive <laughs> societies uh, in human history, right? in, mm. in human history. So, but, and then, but this, is that, this is taking place in the geopolitical context of the rise of China, mm. which, you know, I have tremendous respect for China and its culture and its people, it's, you know, but it, if you look at it, it's not, you know, highly authoritarian, one party state, uh, mass techno technological surveillance, shoveling uh, Uyghur Muslims into re-education camps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, mm. and they're very, very powerful and they're getting more powerful. We have a kind of a quite a chauvinistic uh, Russia to some extent. It has its own kind of thing. And then the Middle East continue, will continue to be characterized by bubbling insurgencies, state failure, uh, revolutionary elements to it. And, and, and so, so, that, so that's where we are. And the, those forces, and then demographic forces as well that we're seeing, mm. 
in the so-called developing world in Africa. We will see we'll see a lot more migration now as we're seeing a demographic bulge take place. So these these are these are these these things are baked in in some senses, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So then it's how do we respond in a way? Uh, how do we respond to this? Yeah. So, so that so that's so that I think that was really the point of the piece. Yeah. We have a very progressive um, uh, society, and yet. We apparently want to deconstruct it and tear it down yes. in the context of, mm. of the rise of some of the most illiberal mm. and authoritarian regimes in human history. Mm. It seems a very, very strange thing to want to do. Doug, before we before we uh, finish, I'm, I'm very interested, you know, you talked a bit about, you know, where you grew up. And I just wondered at what point in was it in your teenage years? When did you decide to take the academic route? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, if there, if you had been, you know, your first time at university, first in your family at university, um, I don't know what your family dynamic was like, but, but when did you sort of decide to take the route you have? Well, I, my, fam my, my parents, were, you know, they, 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 they hadn't, I was the first person in my family ever to go to university. Uh, and I, I, I went to uh, really not good <laughs> inner city uh, comprehend. I went to uh, junior infants, junior nursery infants, junior yeah. in Hackney. Just, just I don't know if you know the Kingsmead estate. Do you know oh the yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I just uh, Dalby. Just, just it was the Kingsmead estate was 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 the was the catchment area for that. Just literally like running store the Kingsmead estate. Then I went to a, a school called Rains Foundation in Bethnal Green, which was I mean so you know. So I went. I went to very sort of inner city, uh, multi-ethnic, uh, poor, poor schools, uh, and never. And, and first in my family to go to university. I had no guidance really. I, had, you know, there's no guidance in terms of. And my parents couldn't. I mean, they, you know, it was a it was a world they, they didn't know much about. Um, but so so I so I so I did my degree. Uh, I did I did it as, through an access course when I was tw I think I started when I was 21, and then I did various uh, things. I went to Bosnia for a best part of a year. I worked in Bosnia, which was an incredible experience. Helped establish an NGO in Bosnia, and then I came back, and then I went to uh, Bristol. I, I had five years in Bristol in my masters in what was called development administration and planning. Uh, so basically, international development, and then I did my PhD at Bristol. Uh, in international relations, I did, looked at um, American counterinsurgency uh, doctrine in in Latin America, and then and it, it's all, I went from there. Really, I kind of uh, you know I, I I really got more and more into it. I never sort of planned it out. But so, is it is it correct to say, therefore, that you entirely were self motivated? In other words, I mean, none of this was in the mix anyway. Before was it? It wasn't like laid out that you would automatically go to university and all of that stuff so this was this was basically you just decided and you you to go on that road and you did it yeah pretty much basically exactly right yeah that's that's that that's what happened i had nobody guiding me uh or telling me i had no i mean not judging my parents but i had no educational encouragement ever ever I was always a bright kid. I always, I always loved to read. And I st even obviously now I read and write books, but I, I've always loved to read. Yeah. So yeah, so I kind of like I sort of fell into it, and I thought that that it was a, a really interesting, and I just really enjoyed it. But I still he, do. I mean, I still. I, yeah. uh, but I was going to say the reason I, I I just brought that up is that at the beginning you said something which I thought was quite noble. Actually, you said uh, you consider it a privilege to do what you do. And, and I would suggest, without wishing to be sentimental, that that comes from the way in which you came by it. Well, the thing, the other, I, I, I consider it a privilege insofar as I think there's something very special 
that young people would come to university and to, to me and, and whatever and entrust me with their educational intellectual yeah, development yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and i think that i i see that as a real privilege uh to be allowed into that position and i see i mean i see i've taught tens of thousands of people over the years and you know occasionally most of them are fantastic but in occasion you get those real diamonds and that that's really very special and I'll, i'll also say i mean you see a lot of this about snowflake students and stuff like that i mean i vast majority of the students that I teach, I mean, are just, they're just lovely. I mean, they're fantastic, you know, young people, very, you know, hardworking, honourable, good, good, good young people. Uh, so I, so I think that is a real privilege. And I think, and I, I and I also come from a, you know, I say a family of, you know, mum was a cleaner, dad was a sign writer. He used, to, he used to cycle 12 miles to work every day and cycle 12 miles. It's cycled 12 miles to work, all weathers, on an old heavy bike, couldn't afford a car, do a full day's work and cycle back. And, and I can go on, I'm not gonna go on too much, but so the way I see it is to, to, to be able to pay to be paid to read and to teach and to write and to engage in fantastic programs like, like this with you, Peter, is an absolute privilege. Mm. I'm not having to get on my bike and cycle 24 hours, 24 miles every single day in the snow to do a full day's work just to make a, a, a bad living. So, yeah. so I, I, I'm very much about, I, I think that we have a lot of this in society where people, I think self-pity is a very, very dangerous emotion mm. and it can lead, it's a very debilitating emotion and it allows one to uh, say, it's not, it, it's not my fault, it's not my responsibility, it's your responsibility and I'm a victim and therefore, you know, on that. And I think that's a really debilitating thing. Mm. So I, 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 So whenever I feel bit funny or you know i think back to what, yes. I, what i had to do in the past or what my family had to do and i think to myself you, Doug, you haven't got a right mate you haven't got a right <laughs> to feel sorry for yourself yeah. you know what i mean you just got, <laughs> so that that's the way i see it peter and i think i think uh and i guess that's also it helps to explain some of my passion around some of these issues when i see people uh, in the academia who are good people but often come from very privileged backgrounds mm. Mm. And, um, and don't really have an idea. And in, still in academia, it's a very privileged position to be in good pensions, good pay, you know, good, very good conditions, and would still wish to judge ordinary people on the most disgusting and horrible grounds. Oh, you know? I know, yeah. The stuff, the, the stuff you see that's so casual, casually said, you know, um, white privilege and this stuff. I just think, it, I just think it's shocking. It's really shocking. Well, Doug, I mean, it's been fantastic talking to you about it all. Um, and uh, thank you very much for giving us your time. I know, I do believe you've got to go off now for an optician's appointment, I believe. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, Doug, look, thank you very, very much. And uh, I do hope that we speak again very soon in the same way. Um, you know, uh, events are very intense at the moment. So I think there'll be lots of opportunities. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you um, so much. Thank you. That is it uh, for this week on So What You're Saying Is. Uh, We shall see you next time. Thank you very much.